Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Carmen Imes, who is an Associate Professor of Old Testament at Viola University and Talbot School of Theology. She has a, an NMA from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a PhD from Wheaton College. She's the author of uh, two books. Uh, the first one is Bearing God's Name, and this, uh, the most recent one that's about to be released is Being, not Bearing, but Being. You'll see what I mean, why I had to correct myself. Being God's image. And that's the focus of our conversation. We look at what it means to be God's image, not just bear God's image, but be God's image and some of the uh, ethical implications of that. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Carmen Ives. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, well, as we, I said offline, I've not read your book. It's not, well, it actually might be out by the time people are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. but I, um, I'm so excited about the direction you're going in the book, what I think, you know, just in talking mm-hmm. to you about how not only understanding God's image, but also how does that, how do we use that to bring to bear on, on really important ethical topics today? So anyway, yeah. thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Good to good to finally meet you. <laughs> yeah, you too. I've known your so you know I I've known of your name. Okay, a little backstory because I I you know just you know you notice different scholars you know sure. and stuff and and I I noticed you were teaching at Prairie Bible College oh, way yeah. up in Canada in Alberta. Yep. And so I came really close to getting my first teaching job there back when I was um, oh. searching for a teaching post, fresh on my PhD, and I was getting denied by everybody. And and they were one of the only ones that said, "Yeah, let's let's talk further." And then it was so funny. I, I don't know if I should say this publicly, but um, the guy who was about to hire me, you know, hire me, he says, "Hey, here's you know, here's you know what we offer, you know." And I looked at it, and I was just like, "I'll take I'll take minimum wage. I just need a job, you know." And the 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 salary was remarkably lo- lower than any other salary yep. I've I've seen. And I noticed yep. it was way up in in a very cold area of Canada. I'm from Southern California, so I'm looking yep. at this, and deep down, I'm thinking, mm, "Well, I'll take anything at this point," you know. Yeah. But then the guy trying to hire me says, "Well, are you sure you don't have any questions about the salary?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, this is a little lower than what I was thinking, but." Yeah. better pounding nails, I guess, you know, but he's like, yeah, we're really trying to, we're really trying to work on that or whatever, but I'm yes. like, are you trying to talk and they to have, the job? They have increased their salary since you applied. Probably. Um, I was there for four wonderful years. And although the pay was not amazing, the community was amazing and we actually really miss it. Um, and we, we saw it as a missional place, you know, like we, we had been missionaries for 15 years. So we were used to living, um, frugally and God provided a house for us. And we uh, had a wonderful thrift store on campus that, that provided lots of clothing and other needed things at rock bottom prices. So we're just so, so thankful for our years at Prairie. It was a great experience. I got the sense of that, you know, and that's, you know, I don't know too many scholars are going to scholarship for the money. It's not, (laughs) you know, so yeah, I, I, I would take a, a rich community and a vibrant place of learning and teaching over, yeah. you know, a higher paycheck. So yeah. that makes sense. Um, and now you're at Biola. How, well, let, yeah. let's, let's go back. How, just tell us really quickly, how did you get into scholarship? Um, was this something mm-hmm. you were always passionate about or what's the story behind that? I always loved to learn and I always loved the Bible, but like many women who love to learn and love the Bible, I w- wasn't sure there was a place for me in it. Right. I, I wasn't sure what, what does a woman do with this? Um, and I hadn't seen it modeled. And so my my sense of calling was to missions. And so my husband and I became missionaries. And um, while we were overseas in the Philippines, I started working on a master's degree. And it's just really clear that the academy is what I'm built for. I just love learning. I love books. I love uh, the academic calendar. I love what happens in the classroom. I love what happens in the professor's office. And so our thought was that we would be missionaries for a good chunk of time. And then eventually I'd come back and teach missions maybe um, at a school, but we didn't stay overseas long enough to do such things. <laughs> we were only there two and a half years. So you don't become a missions prof with two and a half years of field experience. Um, and really my love for scripture never went away. And over the years, I worked through my own um, understanding of what the scriptures teach about women's roles and came to the place where I really believed that God had gifted me to teach and was calling me to teach. And so 
So we dove right in uh, and I did my master's at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary while I had little kiddos. Um, I had two daughters when I started seminary and then uh, we had our son partway through. And so entering into the PhD, my kids ranged from three years old to fifth grade. And so it was a family endeavor to get me through the PhD at Wheaton College. Um, but yeah, such a rich experience. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then now you're at Biola University, right? I am. Yeah. yeah. And I've been here. This is my second year here, and it's been a great experience. I think I've been most surprised at how similar it feels to Prairie, actually, culture-wise. I thought Southern California would be a far cry from the prairies of Alberta, but I find that my students are so similar, and namely, they they love Jesus. They are eager to understand the scriptures, and they're very kind to each other and to me. And so it's just been a really wel- warm and welcoming place. Uh, I wondered if Southern California would be like, my students would be too cool to talk to me, or I wouldn't be cool enough. Like, I, I, didn't, I wasn't sure what to expect. I'm from Colorado. Um, you know, California is where all the Valley girls were. So that's, <laughs> I, I just didn't know. Um, but it's been such a beautiful community. And I love my students and my colleagues. Well, I, I'm a huge uh, Biola fan. Uh, they, they do sponsor the show from time to time. So I, there, nice. there's a sense in which I do, um, you know, get get paid for that. But just here, they're paying me to say this. You're not paying me to say this. I love uh, the culture there. Um, your, your president, uh, Barry is just one of the most humble, wise people, you know, I've, I've ever met every, I was just there touring the campus actually a few weeks ago with, with my daughter who is exploring colleges and and every Dean and prof and all the way, like the film department and everybody, they all were so passionate about the supremacy of Christ. Yeah. And they're they're like, look, we will, we'll teach you film. We'll teach you all the videography. We'll, you know, we're, we're good at what we do, but Here's what we're mainly passionate yeah. about. We want to release yeah. solid Christ followers into all areas of life. I mean, it was yeah. everybody was so yeah. passionate about that. And, and humble that's and- I that's I think why it feels similar to Prairie, because nobody goes to Prairie or to Biola unless they want Bible. You're it's not like people are like gonna hold their nose to take Bible classes and really are here for film because Bible is such a big part of our core curriculum that you take a lot you take a lot of bible and theology and so you could go do your degree elsewhere and not have to do that if that's not what you want. And so I find that students actually want to come to class and they actually want to engage and so it doesn't feel like pulling teeth to get people interested in the old testament which is super fun for me. I had a fun they had me down for like 2 days of speaking man, they ran me into the ground. I'll say that. <laughs> it was morning to night nonstop. Oh but I had, I mean, interacting with such a wide range of, of students to, all the mm-hmm. way from like groups of students that didn't really feel like they fit, but they were, yep. Yep. I was like, we want you here all the way yep. to like conservatives and more people just trying to figure out where they're at. And yeah, yeah, I just, I loved it, man. I love, I missed that the college age, you know, where people yeah. were just on the, on that yeah. part of their journey, you know, where yeah. they're asking for hard questions. I love yeah. that. I love it too. And that's what what first planted the seed in me was just all the hours I spent in my professor's offices when I was in college asking them questions. And it wasn't always Bible questions. Sometimes it was, should I be dating this guy? Should we get married? Um, what, you know, how, how do I move into missions? Like th- there were lots of life questions and decision questions. And I felt like my professors were so kind to come alongside and mentor me through that. And I thought, boy, this is the best of both worlds where there's a pastoral dimension to the job. And, and yet there's also the study and writing and teaching aspect to it. And I love, I love both equally. I love office hours. Yesterday, I was the one tearing up during office hours, just hearing student stories and, and walking them through some hard things. You know, a student could come and say, man, I just can't get this paper right and we discover it's not about the paper. It's that this paper for him had become a question of whether he belonged in the academy. Like it, there was so much weight on the assignment. It wasn't just how do I format it, but can I cut it? Am I enough? Do I have what it takes? And so being able to pivot the conversation to talking about what he has to offer the academy and how sometimes the academy squeezes out all of those who are not sort of the typical student cookie cutter student. 
And so just to be able to invite students from a, from a wide spectrum of life experiences and, and viewpoints and social locations to come in because we want their voices and because they have a contribution to make, that's been so much fun. That's good. Oh, man. And so you said you have two kids? I have or three. Three kids. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I just want to acknowledge something that maybe, I guess, I don't, not to jump into the deep waters right now, but that, that men, especially in the debate about women and leadership and all that stuff, like, you know, I did a PhD and my wife was home with our kids and I would mm-hmm. go to the office 10, 12 hours a day. That was, that was, I mean, I loved every second of it, but it was one of the most hardest, most difficult things I've ever done. Yeah. I can't imagine doing that as a hard enough as a father, but as mm-hmm. a mother, I, I just, again, leaving aside all the debate, just, can we just step yeah. back and say that that is profoundly remarkable that you would push through something that is intrinsically nearly impossible with little kid, the physical, mental, emotional, physiological, just stress that, and, and yet you earned a PhD from Wheaton, which is not an easy school to earn a PhD. Yeah. So. I think I would say, you know, it's not a cakewalk for anybody, but the key is partnership and support, like finding support. And so for me and my husband, we have in each season, we've kind of redescribed what is life going to look like? Who who does the laundry? Who does the grocery shopping? Who who helps the kids with their homework? And so we've, you know, there are certain things that only I can do, namely give birth and breastfeed. But actually, everything else can be done by either of us. And my husband is a wonderful father. And so we we had a schedule during my PhD in which every 15-minute segment of the day was designated for something. And he was working a split, 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 split shift doing full-time mission work, uh, you know, doing admin and logistics for our mission organization, you know, from early, early in the morning to late, late at night, but getting the kids ready and off to school, doing all the grocery shopping and the cleaning. While I was at the library, I would get up early, go to the library and work till three. And then I'd come home, get the kids from school and be with them until bedtime. So we we had a way of carving things up so that we're both fully engaged and fully involved. And so um, I agree with you, it would be absolutely impossible to do if you're doing everything by yourself, if you're doing all the traditional things that moms have done and none of, plus all of the academic journey, but we carved things up in different ways. And by the time I started the PhD, my youngest was three years old. So we were out of the breastfeeding stage. You know, everything else was fair game for either of us to invest. And we just made sure that I had a chance to connect with every kid every day. So we had kind of a rotating system of time with mom Plus, after school, my husband would make dinner and put it in the fridge ready to go in the oven. He would like prep it all so that when I got home, I could just focus on the kids and I didn't have to be cooking. I could just take what he prepared and stick it in the oven and focus on the kids and their homework and whatever. So I I feel like it was a rich time for our family of like all of us pulling in one direction. Um, You know, we we made I made a chart with thermometers on it. Like, you know, when you do a fundraiser and you're like watching the thermometer fill up as the funds come in, I had charts, I had thermometers for each of my categories of comprehensive reading and the dissertation so that when mommy finished reading a book, the kids got to take turns coloring in the thermometer (laughs) so that they were celebrating with me. You know, if I finished a dissertation chapter, that meant we could go out to eat or we got ice cream. And so there was a collective sense of we're in this together which was fun. Then we reached the point where they thought, yeah, probably mom will never, ever be done. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> so it, it worked pretty yeah. well for three years and then they kind of burned out. <laughs> we have, we have, we've had a tradition, uh, early on, at least when I'd submit a book manuscript, like when I was kind of at least done, like off my plate, you know, we would mm-hmm. all go to, uh, Chili's and get yeah. usually like chips and salsa and a dessert. And especially, you know, early, I can think the first book I submitted first couple, I mean, we were, I was working two jobs to make ends meet. It was yeah. just really yeah. tough. So to go out, we rarely, rarely went out. So, I mean, it was such a special time. And, and yeah. now, you know, I've, I've written a few books and now it's like, dad, have you written a book recently that we can go out again? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> exactly. it's kind of lost its excitement, you know, but yeah, those are, yep. those are just fun ways to include the whole family and, and what can be challenging, you know, times. And 
I would say my wife and I more recently, cause now she works full time. Like she runs the organizations that I, so I feel like I work for her now, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But now, so we've, we've learned to do more, I guess what you learned during yeah. the PhD where it's like, this yeah. is, we're on Team. kind of zone, zone defense and there is no yeah. kind of, you do this, you do that. Yeah. So if I do any laundry, I'm helping my husband out because he normally does it right. He does all the shopping. You know, I'm like, Hey hun, we're out of cream cheese. And he puts it on his list. Like that's just, there's no, there's no verse in the Bible that says the woman has to do the grocery shopping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should get into it that, but I want to get into your book because that, <laughs> okay. that would be a fun one to pursue. But, um, le- okay. So your, your book that again, I think this will, if I, if I know the timing, right, this, your book will be coming out probably in a week or so when people are listening to this, um, awesome. bearing God's image, you're tackling one of the most talked about, I don't want to say complex, maybe it's complex, but like, what does it mean to bear God's image? Um, mm-hmm. and I love that you tease out the, all the practical implica- implications of this, but let's start mm-hmm. with what does it yeah. mean to bear God's God's image? I know. Yeah, so I'll start, about. I'll start with a, with a correction. It's not, so the, my first book was bearing God's name. This one is being God's image. And so being rather than bearing, and I, there are lots and lots of people, like the majority of people who talk about the image of God, talk about bearing the image or talk about imaging God. But I actually start the book um, by trying to make what I hope is a strong case for why we should shift that language, because I believe that every human being is the image of God. It's not something we carry, which sort of makes it like an extra add-on that that could be then taken away or dropped or or lost. Yeah. The image of God is fundamentally who we are. To be human is to be the image of God. It can't be lost. It can't be diminished. It can't be destroyed. It's not defined by its function, although it's expressed in functions. I don't attach image to our capacities or to our function. So when people talk about imaging God, turning the word image into a verb, it makes it something we do rather than who we are. So I don't know if... I'm, I'm sure that all readers will not decide to agree with me on that, but I hope that I persuade lots of people uh, that we are the image and that uh, th- that identity, that human identity then has implications for all a host of things that we do. But one reason it's important for me to start at, at that starting point is because I, I think a lot of what we see in our world um, a lot of the forms of discrimination or neglect or abuse that we see in our world has to be, it begins with an assessment of someone else's humanity that is somehow diminished. Um, if, if, for example, if rationality was the basis for the image of God, if, if, if we're the image of God because we're rational creatures, then we could actually plot humans on a sliding scale of how much reason do they exhibit. And then as soon as someone is in a stage of dementia or in a coma, or if they're born with an intellectual disability, then that seems to imply that they're less the image of God than other humans. And I think it's very important to say that every human being has equal dignity. So mm. so that's that's sort of my starting point in the book. That's super that clear. I've heard, I, you know who I first, well, your colleague, Ryan Peterson, who's done work yes. on this. Yes. I think if I remember correctly, he made the same correction. I think I used the phrase yes. bearing. He's like, well, actually, I, I, I like bear, being more. So Yes. Yeah, I actually based. So so my first book, Bearing God's Name, was based on my dissertation work at Wheaton. It's a reexamination of the command not to take the Lord's name in vain, which I argue is um, is really a, an acknowledgement that Israel bears God's name. And so it's telling them, you belong to me. I've put my name on you. So now live like you belong to me. So it's a, a missional, ethical reading of that command. Um, this book was a very different sort of project because it's not based on my dissertation research. It's based on other people's dissertation research, like Ryan Peterson. So he was actually my starting point for for kind of uh, clarifying or or shifting the nuance to say, uh, no, we are the image of God. That's our human identity. And so based on his work and the work of Richard Middleton, Kathy McDowell, John Kilner, others who wrote their dissertations on this topic, I've kind of assembled what I, I think is the best of each of their insights and then said, okay, given this foundation, now let's chase this through the rest of the Bible and then into the implications for behavior and for for Christian ethics. I really like um, Middleton's work. I read, mo- mm-hmm. I think, most of it, of the ones you, you yeah. listed. Yeah, the liberating that, image, which, yeah. 
Would you say that he's pretty spot on in, in your estimation? I would. Yeah. He actually wrote the foreword to this book. We're on the same page about the image. I love how he talks about that the Im- that rulership is not the content of the image, but it's the implication of the image. So, so it's not that we are the image of God because we rule. We rule because we're the image of God. So the starting point is that um, human identity that Ryan Peterson talks about, but then it's meant to be expressed in benevolent stewardship, benevolent rulership over creation. I think when we get those in the right order, then again, it helps with, well, what happens when, what, how, how are we going to talk about humans who aren't ruling over anything or, or who, who are not in a, in a place where they have the capacity to do much? Um, whether it's because of severe disability or they're super young, you know, an infant or a preborn child, or if we're talking about someone in their later years and they've begun to lose capacities, you know, what does it mean to rule? Well, if we come back to this is our human identity, and now let's talk about the ways of expressing it, but we don't attach the image to that expression. I, I think that is helpful. You're stressing just more the ontological yes. uh, object of reality that we bear God's image, not trying to separate it from the function. The function flows yeah. from the ontological reality, yes. but the image of God is is intrinsic to the ontological yes. reality. Okay. Yep. It's intrinsic and it can't be diminished or destroyed. And that idea I first got from John Kilner. He spoke at ETS. He gave a plenary session at the Evangelical Theological Society. I think it was my first year back in 2012 or something. Now I don't remember uh, for sure the year. Um, oh, that wasn't my first year, would have been in seminary. So we're talking maybe even 2009, 2010. He gave a, a, a talk on that. And he said, I used to teach that the image of God was diminished after the fall, or that it was, you know, lost in some way, that there's that when Adam and Eve choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their status as God's image is, is somehow compromised. Mm. And he said, he went on to make what I thought was a really compelling case that the Bible doesn't support that view. That if you carefully and closely read the text, that is not what's lost. Certainly there's a a breach between humans and God. There's a separation. There's antagonism between them and God and between them and each other and between them and creation. But it never says the image is lost or diminished. And if we turn to chapter 5 of Genesis... We see image of God language being used again for humans. If we turn to chapter nine, this is where I think it's especially compelling. After the flood, God tells Noah, here's why you can't kill each other. Because the because you're the image of God. Um, and so if it's still true after the flood, and if it's still true after the fall, then I don't think we can say that it's been diminished. Okay. What it, what it almost, I'm just trying to think of an analogy, like, say a tree had a disease or something, you know, that disease, you know, sin is a disease, whatever, like, does, that doesn't mean the tree is any less a tree. It's still a tree. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's treeness is not compromised at all. It's just, it's a tree in need of some kind of healing, some kind of restoration. Is that, I mean, I don't know if that's too simplistic or. Yeah. Uh, you know, an illustration that I like to use to describe it is I, I think there's a, a strong notion of kinship related to the image because, and we see that in, in Genesis 5, where Adam's son is his image, just like we're God's image. So there's a kind of family re- relationship that is implied by our status. And if you have a child who rebels against you, wants nothing to do with you, your relationship is strained, but there's no possible way of erasing the biological family connection. You are their parent, no matter whether you're talking to each other or not. And they are your child. You can't erase the ontological fact that they came from your seed, mm. right? So um, so I think that's how I like to talk about it. And I would agree with those who, are, who hasten to point out that there is a problem after the fall. I agree that there's a problem and that there's brokenness. I would follow um, Haley Gorenson Jacob has a wonderful book on glory in Paul and I'm kind of building on her work by saying, I think what's lost at the fall is the glory, not the actual image. So at at the fall, humans retain their status, their dignity, but then they're not living congruently with that identity. And when we don't live in congruence with our God-given identity, there's a loss of glory. 
So what we're being conf- in the New Testament, when we're being conformed to Christ, who is the image of God, I think that's saying Christ is human, just like we are. He's the image of God and we're the image of God. But he he exhibits a glory that's supposed to result from being the image of God that we've lost because we're not living in alignment with that identity. And so there's a a, a possibility as we conform to Christ to be restored to the glory we were intended to have. Mm. Oh, that's help. That's super helpful, actually. This episode is sponsored by World Concern. World Concern is a Christian humanitarian organization that is addressing some of the most significant needs in the world today. For instance, there's been a devastating drought that's hit Somalia. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's become one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world today. Uh, Four relentless years of drought have destroyed the country of Somalia. In 2022 alone, over 40,000 people have been killed from the drought and uh, children and and families continue to have ongoing needs, the basic necessities of life, food, water, and of course, ultimately the love of Christ. So for instance, a a young mom named uh, Saifia had over 50 sheep prior to the drought. And now after the drought, she only has one sheep, which means she basically has no income and no way to feed her children. And yet this is one of many stories we can tell about the horrific effects of the drought in Somalia. So through World Concern, you can provide urgently needed food, water, and emergency supplies to families in need. 12 bucks can feed a family for a whole month. That's crazy. 12 bucks feeds a family for a whole month. So I invite you to pray. We should always pray. And I invite you to take action. Please consider giving a gift of 12 bucks. No, let's say 24 bucks. Let's let's help two families. Uh, consider giving a gift of 12, 24 or more you know, dollars to help families survive this hunger crisis. You can give today at worldconcern.org forward slash theology. That's worldconcern.org forward slash theology to embody the love of Christ toward family and children in need. I, I'm curious, and I want to get really quickly to the, the practical implications because that's, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. But um, mm-hmm. is there, I've always been intrigued by like, I guess more of a question, why is such a profoundly significant um, idea, doctrine, it, it, us bearing, us being God's image? Mm-hmm. So that's so hard. It's deeply ingrained. <laughs> I know it's crazy. I, I'm embarrassed now to go look, look back at my books and see how many times I said bearing. God's oh, no, image. no. I, Preston, <laughs> I just read the audiobook of my own book and it's kind of scary how many times I said bearing the image in the book where I argue that we should say oh, no the image. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, no, okay, it's, that's it's deeply ingrained. <laughs> Why does the Old Testament not hardly even mention it? You mentioned, you know, obviously Genesis 1, Genesis 5, Genesis 9, 6, mm-hmm. I think it is. Is yeah. it even mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament or Old Testament? In the, in the New Testament, Testament yeah. Well, you have James, James yep. 3, I think. And then most of the other references the image of God Washington. are referring to Jesus. Yep. Is it just such a assumed notion that it doesn't need to be mentioned or what, why hardly? That's a fascinating question. So I began my work in Exodus at Sinai talking about bearing the name. And I began to think, well, this is weird because I I love tracing this theme of bearing God's name through the Bible where God has placed his name on his covenant people. And now we're invited into this vocation of representing him. That's really cool. And it's compelling. And I see it everywhere, but it only starts midway through Exodus. So what about the first part of the story? Like, how could we tie this all together? And people kept asking me when I talked about a representative view of bearing God's name, they kept saying, oh, isn't that kind of like being the image of God, like, or bearing God's image, they would say that that we're representatives of God over ruling over creation. And so then my response was, okay, so it's similar in that it's a representative role, but it's different in its scope. Every human being is the image of God but only the covenant people bear God's name. And so I think what what I see happening in scripture is that first we get introduced to the wider human purpose, but because things get derailed in Genesis 3 and humans lose that closeness with God, God inaugurates this next project, which is a an inner, like you could think of it as a like an inner part of a Venn diagram or a, or a next level up on different tears of election, maybe, where he says, okay, I want to restore all creation. I want to restore humanity to their purpose. So I'm going to choose this subset of humanity to then mediate my will and my um, 
my love to the nations and and they can be reconcilers, right? So I think the reason why image of God kind of disappears is because we have a focus on the covenant people who bear God's name. And once we get to Jesus, who's the climax of that covenant, then we can start talking about, okay, what are the implications for all humanity? Like once we have the people of God reconciled with God, ready to reach the nations, then we can go back to talking about the image. That's that's my best guess. That, that makes sense. I mean, it, and I don't, sometimes the concept can be everywhere without the word necessarily occurring, right? And that, I hear you yeah. saying that, that, yeah. that this concept underlies so much of yeah. other super important um, yeah. uh, aspects of God's story. Let, uh, okay, so when you're... When you're making a distinction between bearing and being, you know, mm-hmm. I immediately was thinking what you kind of hinted to, you know, people with disabilities or people, even yeah. somebody who's like unconscious or whatever, like they don't, because yep. Yep. Um, if you put too much in the rationality or function yep. of humans, then you're yep. just excluding a, you <laughs> a are. chunk of humanity. So yep. in terms of the implications, um, is that one area you dive into with, with, uh, in d- disability? And then I would love yes. to, yeah. Yes. I have a couple of sections in the book on disability and I've actually dedicated the book to, uh, a dear neighbor of ours in, in Alberta who is developmentally disabled and the best neighbor anyone could ask for. Um, just a really super kid. He's 20 now, uh, 20 or maybe about to turn 21. And he, he was cheering me on every day I'd come home from work and he'd stop me in the cul-de-sac and say, uh, first he'd ask about my COVID symptoms. He would say, <laughs> yeah, I'd roll down my window and he'd say, do you have any symptoms? And I'd say no symptoms. And he would ask for my imaginary COVID card and he would pretend to scan it. And then, and then he would give me the green light to go home. And then he'd quickly ask me, did you write, did you write about me in your book today? And I'd have to say, no, not yet. Like how, how many words did you write? And so I only wrote 200 words today, you know? So he was checking on me every day. And then he'd say, what are you having for dinner? I'd say, I don't know, Colton, you tell me what I'm having for dinner. He goes, you're having spaghetti. Because he actually every day after school would would go to my house and help my husband, help my husband with chores. So he would watch while my husband's getting dinner ready. So then I would show up and Colton knew what I was eating before I did. So anyway, just a dear, a dear, dear neighbor. And, um, so yeah, I have uh, I have a couple of sections where I explore different dimensions of disability. I've, I've become increasingly convinced that we operate with a we tend to operate with this cookie cutter image of a human, the ideal human in our mind, who is usually white, male, middle aged, able bodied, married with children. Like there's this very specific kind of like this is the default. And then anyone who's not that, so like a single man or an older man or a younger man or a black man or a Latino man, like are all kind of one step to remove from that center cookie cutter. I, I, and I, and I've heard people talk about this, but I've now been sitting with it for a few years as I worked on the book. And I'm just convinced, you know, I, I saw it in my office yesterday as a student came and said, I don't know if I'm enough. And what he saw about himself is he's he's wildly creative and full of energy and full of vision. And he, when he looks at his male professors, he doesn't see that he he can't map himself onto what who they are or what they are. And so then he kind of self selects like I guess I don't belong here. Wow. And and maybe I should go into theater where the things that I naturally am are welcomed instead of sort of sidelined or there's not really a place for it here. And so I am, I'm convinced that we have been deeply affected by this cookie cutter idea. Descartes, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm just dabbling here, but it's Descartes who said, I think therefore I am. And I'm just so convinced that's not biblical. Mm. We, we don't, exist. We aren't ontologically or existentially here because we think. We're here because God made us his image. Our identity is grounded in what God says about us or who God says we are, not in some kind of self-determination that happens when our neurons are firing. Because then the moment that your neurons don't fire as rapidly as other people want them to, or in the same ways that other people, then you don't fit. Man, I love to drill down into that. How do we change that perception or, cause I mean, here you have, you know, these, like you said, like these male rational teachers, super mm-hmm, smart, mm-hmm. um, 
and I, I mean, I know the biology professors are like yeah. in shape, you know, they're like these totally from, from whom I've learned so much. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. In, in my neck, well, just to clarify, no, not, not like they're doing anything, but like that, that, that could and unintentionally, if the people who are up front happen to be kind of more of this cookie cutter, again, I've nothing against, I'm not saying anything. Oh, it's a question. Like how, how do we, how how do we address that that persona so that people don't are unintentionally made to feel like maybe I'm lesser than or I don't fit in or or I, you know I, I get this a lot from men that you know don't exhibit what our culture would say are stereotypical masculine traits you know same thing and then again even if no one's saying it there's a culture here that could unintentionally make people feel like I'm less of a man or or God forbid they would feel like I'm not a godly man because the church is embodying kind of this kind of masculinity or, or femininity, which is really shaped more by cultural assumptions yeah. than, than the Bible. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, who does, who does do the grocery shopping? Who does do the laundry? Like we we've lived that reality and my husband has had to wrestle with, well, what do you do about play dates when, you know, you, your kids want to get together and normally it's like the moms will chat while the kids play. It's like, well, what do you do now? And um, yeah, I think, I think there are some really practical, um, deliberate things that we can do to help widen the net and help people to know that their voices are their voices matter. Um, I'm part of an organization called Every Voice, a center for kingdom diversity. We have a website and um, we're working to help diversify what people are reading in theological education. And, and this is a group of conservative evangelical professors who who believe it matters that our students are not just reading white men, but are reading a wide variety of voices. So in the classroom, I try to be really intentional about who are my students reading. And um, one way I've held myself accountable with that is I put a picture, if I ever quote someone in class, like in the PowerPoint, I put up a quote, I put a picture of the person as well, because our, our insights aren't coming out of nowhere. They're coming from who we are and the way we see the world. And so I want students to get a sense for what is the context of where this quotation is coming from. And a picture gives us a slice of that. It's of of course does not tell the whole story. We have plenty of white students at Biola who are third culture kids because they grew up in other contexts or they're from mixed race families or they um, they're from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So there's, there's a lot of diversity that you can't see in a picture. But what I'm trying to do is expose my students to more voices because I want my students to see, I, I want them to see themselves in, in the story, in the biblical story, and see themselves in scholarship, that people like them do contribute to scholarship and that their voices are welcome. Uh, another thing I've done is try to be intentional about the kind of biblical art that I put in my slides. So uh, Lady Wisdom is a Black woman in my slides. Like... I used to have a white woman there. And I, one day I went, wait a minute, why, why is she white? We're in the Middle East. <laughs> like, like she doesn't need to be, she doesn't need to be white. And so just like subtle ways that I'm trying to signal um, that there's more diversity in scripture. I'm, I'm working on a collaborative project now with a psychology professor here at Biola. His name's Oscar Baldolimar. And he's a brilliant uh, cultural psychologist and he specializes in adolescent development of uh, cultural ethnic identity. And we're working on a project where we're making a curriculum for churches that help students navigate their own exploration of cultural background and identity um, with reference to biblical characters who are multicultural. Uh, We've got a lot of them. Like there's a lot of people who change countries or cultures or who are hybrid in some way, like Moses, who's Hebrew, but raised by an Egyptian mom and then marries a Midianite and then goes back and he never really feels fully at home in any of those spaces. And we have students who don't feel at home in any space because they're because they have a some kind of hybrid identity. So helping them to see that the Bible is not a story of whiteness, but it's a story of a multicultural family of God. Um, that's that's one thing that we're doing. I, a few years ago, when I first got to Prairie, an idea occurred to me one day. I thought, I wonder of my own personal library, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. I thought, I'm curious how many of these are written by women. Uh. 
And so I went through my entire office and I turned around backwards every book that was written by a man, not because I want to get rid of them or because I didn't learn anything from them. I've learned so much from men. Every single Bible theology professor I've had has been a man. I've never had a woman in class um, professor. So I just, I turned it all so that you could see the pages rather than the spine. And I left the spine showing of books by women. And it was incredible how few books I had in my personal library by women. And that's a testimony to the fact that I wasn't asked to read women all through Bible college, all through seminary, all through grad school. I think I was asked to read four books by women out of the hundreds of books that I read. And so I, I just, it was a kind of a visual act of noticing and kind of wondering. And so now I've been working really hard to diversify my library because what I'm collecting, then it impacts what I'm reading, which impacts what I'm sharing with students. Uh, so all, all with, a, with the idea that we need to, if we wanna break out of the cookie cutter idea and recognize the full diversity of the body of Christ and all that each cultural background has to bring to the table, then we have to be talking to people who don't look like we do. Yeah. So dis disability was probably the, the newest area for me to explore as I wrote the book. Um, I hadn't collected any books up until that point written by or for disabled people um, or about the Bible from a disability perspective. And so that's where I started to dive in. And I was like, wow, there's so much here that I haven't thought about before. Who did you read? I'm curious. I've, I've been um, dabbling a little bit too. Yeah. So, so Bethany McKinney Fox's book, uh, Disability in the Way of Jesus was my entry point. And that book was just so profound. Uh, the first chapter alone was worth the price of the book. Um, just helping me realize that I had certain assumptions about what it would, what it's like to be disabled and what disabled people want that I, I was wrong about. And I am just really at the beginning of the learning stages in that. But I also picked up a book called, I think it's The Bible and Disability, edited by Sarah Melcher, maybe, and uh, Jerome Shipper, Amos Young. Those are some names that keep coming up in biblical studies, Amos right? Is a, he's kind of a he's, guru, I think. Yeah. Yep, he is. And, and that book is like a one volume, it's Baylor University Press, one volume commentary in which every chapter is about a different part of the Bible and kind of surveying what do we see about disability in this, in this book of the Bible. And so I haven't read it from cover to cover, but as I'm working on projects, I'll look or have students look to see, okay, what do we need to know in this book about like what, what's happening here that we might not be noticing if we're not coming from a place of, uh, kind of acknowledged or diagnosed disability. I, so I, yeah, I host this conference every year called Exiles in Babylon. We always, we tackle kind of four different, four or five different topics in like three hour chunks, you know? And one of the ones we did this year was disability in the church. And yeah. um, it was so funny. A lot of people admitted to me that they said, look, I, coming into this, that was the one I was least excited about. Mm. And it was, I think, hands down, everybody said that was the most impactful. Like I, yep. that, I was... They were like, I, I did not, this opened my eyes up to things I've never thought about. And yeah, yeah, it's just a topic we just, I, 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 like you, I'm just probably a couple of years in kind of thinking and rethinking and reading yep. and talking yep. and stuff. And it's just like my learning curve is just being really yeah bent upwards. But um, what, okay. So what are some other, uh, yeah, ethical areas you deal with? Oh, and by the way, I know, I know you're, you're on a bit of a time crunch. You, you just mm -hmm. give me a maybe a peace sign when you got like two more <laughs> minutes and I'll try to land okay. a plane for you. If, if that's okay, is that right. the best way to... That's fine. That's fine. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So I talk about race and race relations. Um, I talk about disability. I talk about age, uh, a, a bit about ageism. Uh, I talk about vocation and not just in the sense of the ideal choosing what you want to do with your life, but what happens when you can't work um, I tell a story about a season of underemployment for my husband that was really demoralizing. And I just heard from a reader yesterday that that part of that chapter really ministered to him. So um, I talk about gender roles and, and how, you know, what does the Bible say about this and ground things. Since, since the subtitle of, of the book is Why Creation Still Matters, I spend quite a bit of time in the first few chapters of Genesis showing how it's our human embodiment that qualifies us to be the image of God and that our bodies matter, um, our, our sexed embodiment matters, you know, male and female, and then 
that there's this partnership, an inherent partnership in chapters one and two, where both are the image of God. Male and female are both the image of God. And we are both told to rule. And there's no hierarchy as I see it in chapters one and two. It's not as though, um, you know, Adam is made before Eve in chapter two, but it that priority of timing doesn't seem to imply a priority of authority. Um, the, the first time we see a deliberate or explicit hierarchy is in chapter three after the fall. And so I talk, I kind of tease that out. What would it look like if we took seriously the, the need to conform to God's vision for gendered partnership in doing the work he's laid out for humans to do? Um, I talk about marital status a bit and um, interact with the work of Wes Hill a bit. And in that section, as I talk about singleness and the image, do, you know, do we have to be married and having babies to uh, be the image of God? And the answer to that is no. I think um, you know, male-female dissimilarity is a prerequisite for, for procreation, but I don't think procreation is the essence of the image of God because even animals are male and female and supposed to be fruitful and multiply in chapter one. So I don't think that's a necessary entailment of, of being the image. And so I explain why grammatically, chiastically in that section. And then I go on to explore eschatology. So if Jesus, I, I think this is such a, th this is something that we don't talk about enough. Jesus is incarnate. He comes in a human body. He, he dies in a human body. He is raised to life in a human body and is ascends in a human body. So as I, I quote later in the book, uh, a human is now a member of the Trinity. You know, after Jesus' ascension, we have this picture of like, there's a human in the Trinity. And I don't think that's fully appreciated. There's been such a deep-seated idea that you ask Jesus in your heart so you can go to heaven when you die. And we picture heaven as this disembodied existence where we're floating around in the clouds. And I just think it's essential for us to, to recognize if God wanted to give us a disembodied existence, he did not need to send us an embodied savior. Right. He sends us Jesus in a body and Jesus still has his body. And we're looking forward to new creation, not the obliteration of creation, but, but the restoration of creation in which our embodied selves have a role to play. That's I'm, I've never... <laughs> It's so simple, but I've never heard it framed like that, that there's a human in the Trinity. Yeah. And I, I know people something? are like, yeah, 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 but he's God. Well, yeah, yeah. he's also 100% human, right? And that's the yep. Orthodox Christian view is is 100% deity doesn't detract from his humanity at all. So we do have human in the, however you want to slice it, we have a human in the Trinity. I've never, yeah. it just sounds jarring to even say, but um such a strong theme in scripture with so many implications. And yeah, do you, do you feel like in, in our society, even the church where we kind of don't appreciate the theological necessity of embodiment or. We uh, absolutely don't. We don't because I, you know, I've seen it in conversations with young people. You talk about resurrection and they kind of look at you funny, like, well, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. No, Jesus is the first fruits. Like we are all going to raise from the dead. Like our bodies are going to come up out of the ground. When Jesus appears to his disciples, he has scars. There's there's continuity between his, his body that was on the cross and the body that shows up to them. There's continuity. And I just don't think we've sat with that enough. And I think, um, you know, in all your work on sexuality, you know that embodiment is a hot topic. And those, and there are so many um, people who feel a sense of disjunction or dysphoria with their body, body dysmorphia. And I think um, if we recovered the Bible's teaching on embodiment, it, it has something to offer that conversation uh, about who am I? I'm not something apart from my body. The real me is not, is not something amorphous, purely spiritual or soul. Like my body is part of the real me. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I, I hadn't really thought through that implication as I was writing. Like it's hit me more after the implications for our current cultural moment. But I, I would say while I was writing, we were going through the pandemic and everything was on Zoom. And I, and I, I predicted this coming. I, I said, we are going to have a lot of people talking about embodiment <laughs> when this is over because there's, because we're experiencing life in two dimensions, 
but we're meant to experience it in three dimensions. And we're going to be thinking a lot about what does it mean to do church three-dimensionally? Does it matter? Can I just log on to YouTube and watch a pastor preach? If, if church is all about hearing a sermon, I can do that from my living room. Is there something more? Is there something three-dimensional that's essential about being the church? And so I, I kind of explore and press into that a bit in the book. This is something that I appreciate with more liturgical mm. kinds of churches. I had a friend of mine who converted, who went from like non-denominational evangelical to Eastern Orthodox. And yeah. that was one thing he said, one of the huge selling points, one of the many in his mind, you know, is that the Eastern church really takes seriously the holistic nature of yep. embodiment. I mean, when you go yep. into a service, you know, evangelicals like, you know, where's the 45 minute exegetical sermon? How come it's just a yeah. homily? And yeah. the Orthodox people were saying, well, where's the incense? Where's, where's the, the incense? Taste, the touch, <laughs> Where are the, the candles? Where's, well, yeah. But the, it's all designed. It's it's yep. it's not reducing humanity to rationality, which Orthodox right. people would say evangelicalism does. They're trying yes. to say when you when you experience community and the table, like it's a whole body to experience, touch, yes. taste, smell, sounds, feelings. And, um, and I, I think that's so important for evangelicals to recover in some sense that we need to think more holistically about our bodies. And Bethany McKinney Fox talks about that in her book on disability, that when when we have a, a purely rational church service, people with disabilities are excluded because they, they can't track with a three-point, complex 45-minute sermon, but they're there to worship Jesus, and there are ways to worship and be and be the body of Christ that that are simpler. And so they've actually completely restructured their services uh, around more participatory models. So we get up and walk around, we draw things, we, we carry things, you know, we hear things, we smell things. Like there's, there's a lot more to our gathering than just, uh, receiving information. And I think, I think we could, we could do more of that in the evangelical world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Carmen, I don't want to get an angry email from your dean saying I can't do <laughs> a podcast. And you, We're supposed to be at miss, faculty meeting. <laughs> miss half your meeting. But man, so it, so uh, Being God's Image is your latest book, your first book, which draws on your dissertation, right? Uh, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters uh, yep. from IVP. So uh, thank you so much for yeah, yeah the, the conversation. Wish we can go longer. Um, where can people find your work? Yeah, I know you have a website on Biola's website. Do you have yep. a separate website you can point people I to? I have a blog on blogspot, carmenjoyims.blogspot.com. I'm on YouTube. I have my own channel. I release videos every yeah. Tuesday. We're Torah. recording this on a Tuesday, so it's Torah Tuesday today. Yeah. Um, I'm working my way through Exodus and kind of, you know, going slow and showing insights as I work on a commentary on Exodus. Um, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. People can easily find me there. I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep saying it, Carmen. Uh, it was a joy right. talking to you and many blessings yeah. on your life. History. Yeah, thank you, Preston, for having me. It's great to talk. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.